Hey guys, today we have Alex Revel who works in the Beyond Innovation team at GSK. GSK Beyond is a tech innovation and incubation team which has been set up to engage externally with the innovation and venture ecosystem, leading academics and thought partners in the digital health space. Everything Alex talks about in today's podcast is his own opinions and does not necessarily reflect GSK's views. Anyway, Back to the podcast, and hopefully you'll love this episode as much as I do. Right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the meeting room. Please come join us, take a seat, and listen along. We are joined um, by another fantastic guest, Mr. Alex Revel. Hello there. Hi, pleasure's all mine. And um, I'm joined by Tim as well. Hello, Tim, how are you doing? Hey Jed, good to be here again. It's wonderful, isn't it? Weekly, weekly meetings, fantastic. Um, right now, Alex, would you be able to tell us? It's a very broad question, but who is Alex Revel? Sort of, where did you grow up? Uh, did you always want to enter the health industry? Who am I? I hate that question. Who are you? <laughs> who are any of us? Um, Alex Revel. I grew up. I'm a Midlands boy. I grew up in the East Midlands in Derby, not far from Nottingham. A small town called Spondon, if you know it. And yes, I've always wanted to be in the healthcare industry, but I haven't always wanted to do what I'm doing now. Um, and in fact, my plan for what I wanted to do changed roughly every uh, six hours until that point. <laughs> um, uh, so for, 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 for the longest time through, um, through school, I wanted to be a doctor really, really badly. Um, I was going through the motions. I was visiting medical schools. Um, I was taking the um, the aptitude tests. I was I was practicing. She took a huge interest in medicine. Um, and then I guess maybe it's helpful for me to mention um, towards the end of uh, well, actually no, through the middle of my A levels, I had my first bump in the road um, when grades weren't coming out uh, as I hoped they would be. Um, and I was for the first time since maybe 14 years old provoked to consider other options as you do um and when i did i was reading a lot of books on neuroscience at the time just pop science um and i thought well if i wasn't going to do medicine um if i if i couldn't get in what else would i do um and i didn't know that neuroscience was a degree program at the time i thought degree programs for biology, chemistry, and physics and medicine. <laughs> um, and so, but then I looked and I saw Nottingham had a neuroscience degree program. Um, and I since came to realize that those degree programs are not all that old, but the oldest one I think in the country is, is Nottingham's neuroscience in, in the sense that it's a bespoke neuroscience program developed for neuroscientists from the start. I, I think some of the universities piece the neuroscience program together from other, other subjects. So I learned that, that neuroscience was actually a thing that you could go and do. Um, and then actually I got so hooked on the idea that I didn't apply to any medical schools. Uh, and I just, uh, and neuroscience in Nottingham was my top choice. Um, and then below that I had some, you know, biochemistry and biology and related options, but I was dead set on neuroscience. I came to the school. Um, I spoke to some of the staff. I tried to find out what it would be like, expressed interest, wrote my personal statement for neuroscience and um, ended up there for what was supposed to be three years it turned into four because i i converted onto the uh um, integrated master's program so still in health but not in the way that i initially set out to be and then at the end of neuroscience um i applied to um gsk uh, which is where i am now 
and actually GSK was the only place that I applied uh, and I put everything into that application uh, and got it, which was wonderful because I could stop uh, looking for jobs and I could just sort of uh, knuckle down and get on with my final year, my final year work. Yeah, so it was um, it was relatively, um, relatively stress free. And I think that's quite uncommon. And that is solely because I got an offer for a place that I wanted early on and then didn't look elsewhere. I just got on with what I needed to do. So going going back to your degree, mm. was there anything in particular about neuroscience and the brain that fascinated you and made you want to like study it? Yeah, but all of my professors would hate it. <laughs> well, maybe not all of them. I think, you know, secretly everyone who studies neuroscience is, is really in it to understand something more about themselves and how people think. It's the same reason people go into psychology. Um, so it, it really was from a philosophical standpoint. I, uh, being a relatively introspective person, wanting to understand how I came to be uh, and, and how my consciousness exists, manifests in this world, this crazy world. Um, and knowing that that's an area that where there are so many unanswered questions. I mean, going through chemistry, biology and physics at A-level uh, and just seeing how much is known on those topics. I mean, that's threatening to me. I hate, <laughs> I hate that feeling when everybody else knows way more about something than I do. Um, but uh, neuroscience was, was one of those things where it's really hard um, and, and there's lots of great work being done, but there are so many unanswered questions, especially as you start to get more philosophical um, and uh, existential on the topic. So um, that's actually what propelled me into neuroscience, was trying to understand nature of self consciousness uh, and, and uh, what this life is all about. And then actually that then was the anchor for uh, my motivation through the rest of the degree program. So quite happy to go deep on biochemistry, on anatomy, on cell biology, signaling, like all the difficult bits, because, you know, you start out with this anchor of uh, really caring about the, the, you know, you've got a good, a good why. You're starting with a good why for going in. Um, now, you actually exhibited your leadership potential quite early on when you became the president of the Neuroscience Society at Nottingham. Um, how did you find your time as president and sort of what did you learn that you can apply um later down the line oh, i was terrifying i didn't i didn't really expect <laughs> to get the position um i mean I, I mixed with a few different groups um on the course um neuroscience was i think maybe 60 to 70 people in each year group at the time and i was making an effort to network and, and really sort of get to know you know people that i might not have spoken to had i been 10 or 12 years old, <laughs> um, you know, branching out into the into the different groups. Um, but I didn't really expect it to be uh, in the position of society president, especially because the president that came before me was so bloody charismatic. Like he was a real people person and everybody loved him. And uh, I didn't see myself that way. So I was quite surprised uh, to land in the position. So, um, and then what followed was an immense feeling of fear. Oh my God, I'm actually responsible for something now outside of my degree. Um, and I better do something good with the opportunity. Um, so yeah, mostly fear driven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's how it felt. So as, as you're walking through the doors of GSK on your first day, how did you, how did you find the transition between independent working for your own university degree for your education to having to work for a boss, for a company, in a completely different, mm. in a field, which I think is quite different to neuroscience oh massively so the reason i went into tech actually was because 
in my uh, in my master's placement at uni, I was working on some computational modeling, but within neuroscience. So that was my first taste of applying technology to science problems. And that's what I wanted more of. Um, but I hadn't really had much experience in in doing work for other people. You know, all the way through university, you're doing work for your course administrators. You're doing work for your lecturers. You know, everyone says it's for you. You forget that after about 24 hours of starting a degree. Um, you you know, you, you're doing work for to meet a grade requirement. You know, it's everything is measured. You know where you are. Everything's calibrated. And then suddenly you graduate and you're in the world of work and nothing is is measured quite as clearly um, and the measures that are used are unfamiliar um so that's quite that's quite a, a turbulent process that's a difficult thing to get your head around especially when you go straight into a big company like i've done i imagine i've not worked for anywhere smaller but you know i did get a taste of it being president uh, the neuroscience society that was my you know the first chance i had although i didn't know it at the time to develop a product for a person i just didn't really know what the product was and i wasn't thinking about it in those terms but i was having those early thoughts about how do i match up this product that i'm making to the needs of my customer in quotes being the society members you know they want a thing from this thing that i've that i'm making that i'm organizing how do I configure it in the best way? And then likewise, how do I incentivize my, you know, in quotes, leadership team, the, the society uh, council? How do I incentivize those people to work with me to achieve this thing that I want to offer for these people? So these are words that I have now to describe that, that I didn't really have at the time, but it was my first taste um, of, of, de of developing a product, of doing work for, for someone that is not uh, a lecturer. Um, and I think people downplay, you know, I, I, I think people downplay the value of, uh, of society experience at university. Some people play it up. A lot of people play it down. Um, a lot of people think, well, it's, you know, it's not a job. It's not like work experience because you're not getting paid, but you really are doing quite a difficult task of developing a product for a person. Uh, and that is the essence of work, right? Yeah. Um, now, after a year, um, of working at GSK, I believe you're rotated to the Beyond Innovation mm. Division. Um, what does this division aim to do, and sort of how was this transition? <laughs> this transition was unconventional um, uh, in, in no small way. Um, so I actually started out in um, in our global SRP uh, global SAP function, and I was training there to be a functional consultant. Um, to uh, work on our on the implementation of our SAP rollout, which is a enterprise resource planning system. The basically it's the huge software package that the entire company runs on. It's databases of you know what's where and finances, etc., um, and tracking movements uh, of those materials through the company. So that's where I started, and then I realized um, that there was a team starting up called the Beyond Team, and it sounded really really exciting. And I had a background in neuroscience, and they were talking about being interested uh, in computational neuroscience uh, at, at the time. And so I sort of, I saw the opportunity, but I'd got no idea how to get there. Um, and I actually, uh, I call it engineered serendipity, ended up in a lift with our chief digital and technology officer at the time. So <laughs> she, uh, she was and still is in charge of, of tech for the whole organization, ended up in a lift with nobody else. 
And uh, that was my introduction to what I, I now know as terms an elevator pitch, where <laughs> I uh, very, very politely, but sort of very uh, succinctly um, within the, the time that it takes to get from the 12th floor down to the ground floor, um, pitched for to be moved laterally, even though I was only a, you know, a new graduate and had never spoken to it before, pitched to be moved laterally into this, into this new Beyond team, which I barely knew anything about. And uh, that sort of started the ball rolling. And then, uh, I, then I moved um, within a few weeks. So that's how I got there. Um, and the tradition, you know, the transition was was uncomfortable in that sense, but um, <laughs> but thrilling, you know, thrilling. I learned I learned a lot from from that process. Now, I think this is something that's very important to talk about. It, you talk about this elevator pitch, um, but even from a young age and being a graduate, where a lot of people wouldn't have the confidence to do that. Sort of, could you talk about how how you even brought it up, how you suggested something to someone that you'd never spoke to before? Because it's it's an important skill that I think people need to be able to in the workplace, whatever position they're in, sort of take that step forward and be confident in their abilities. Firstly, you've got to be naive enough to try. You've really, really got to have a poor understanding of the consequences of what you're about to do. <laughs> You've got, yes, you, you do have to be kind of silly enough to entertain the idea that something good could, could come of that. Um, and that's, you know, that's nothing to sniff at. Um, this comes back to aligning incentives as well. If you understand your own incentive for pitching something in an elevator figuratively, and you understand why you're pitching it and you understand who you're pitching it to and what's in it for them before you get into the elevator, the confidence, uh, the confidence is secondary because uh, maybe this is just for me, but I think I would suspect for most people, it's a lot easier to have to be confident, even if you don't consider yourself a confident person, once you've got the ideas worked out in your head beforehand, because you know your material in a way, even though my material is what? 15 20 seconds of of uh, of of, of uh, waffling about you know a team that I wanted to move to uh, to someone who had never met me before but I knew what I wanted to say and I knew who I was saying it to and the confidence you know the confidence comes later it's not confidence first I guess is, I guess is the message you don't get confident and then do it yeah. you get confident by doing it um so also then do you think how would you say that you've grown as an individual and a leader sort of since your days as as the neuroscience president oh i grown well i still see myself as a child <laughs> most of the time you know all the day i think we all do um i'm you know i i'm like a gsk is a huge place i'm a small fish in a big pond uh, so it's all relative you you're asking me now how i feel as somebody who's developed and, and grown and i'm sat here thinking oh my god have i <laughs> when uh, but you know you know this it's important to reflect and I've learned uh, a lot about the role of authenticity and my perspective on authenticity in my work and how I express myself and I bring that up because when I first started I was adamant that authenticity was everything if it's not coming from somewhere deep if it's not uniquely you then it's not worth saying and it's not worth doing and you're a fake and you're a fraud um and that was so wrong i mean it's it's important to be genuine right i was getting this mixed up it's very important to be genuine um uh, and this is really important in when you when you you know when you try to become a leader i think being genuine is is really critical authenticity is kind of a subjective term it's really secondary 
it's actually, you know, authenticity, nobody is authentic any of the time. Everything, you know, you, we learn this in neuroscience, that everything we are is a construct of the exposures that we've had through life. And, you know, nothing we ever say is actually truly coming from any deep magical place um, that is, you know, unique to us. And so learning to let go of that, that concept of, you know, divine authenticity um, early enough, I think has actually helped me, um, help me tell better stories. It's helped me, it's helped me um, learn to embrace other people's work and like, uh, and, and leverage expertise of people around me because you become a conduit to help other people succeed. You are like the vehicle, you become somebody who other people can use to get to, you know, to further their own aims. And that's, it, 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 you know, the essence of collaboration. So actually relinquishing this, you know, precious notion of authenticity and uh, is, is, I think, quite helpful. It's a, that was a good growth opportunity. Do you reckon these leadership competencies and like qualities come from a genetic space or do you think you learn them over time? Because I think coming from a neuroscience background, it'd be quite interesting to get your, your opinion on it. <laughs> I appreciate the question. <laughs> I, I mean, there's evidence, right, that, you know, for genetic uh, predispositions to, say, uh, aggressiveness or agreeableness or timidness, you, you can find a, a study to show anything is expressed genetically. I don't think it's useful to think that way, nor do I think it's, it's particularly uh, true by the time you, you know, human beings... We live a long time and by the time you've been on the earth 25 years um you know, <laughs> a lot can change right regardless of what genes you're born with genes you're born with um i i think it's learned I, I do think it's learned and what you're learning as i said is <laughs> there are a lot of misconceptions about what leadership is in um you know, in some business literature and just, you know, I guess myths and legends as you go through through university about, you know, what it means to lead. Uh, and really to lead, for me, I lead all the time every day, even if I'm working with, you know, with peers, even with seniors, I'm leading my seniors in that I'm having an idea, having an opinion on what we should do. Having an opinion is the first step. Just not being inert in the workplace, understanding what work is going on around you, what your role is, and then having an opinion on it is, is the first half of leadership. And then the second half is externalizing it, getting it out. <laughs> so other people know your opinion and either they agree with your opinion and you both go down that path and you've led somebody or they disagree with you and you enter into a debate and then you learn something and you're still leading, right? <laughs> That's what leadership is. That's, you know, it's being the person who stimulates debate and who aligns people around what, you know, what we can agree on and moves us forward in that direction. So leadership is not the preserve of people in uh, senior leadership positions, right? That's something to get that, you know, that I think is important to get your head around quite quickly that you can lead from day one uh, by, by having an opinion and just showing up and doing the work. Now, throughout your career so far, how do you think that you've been able to manage that work-life balance or, or are there points where you may have struggled with that? 
I, yeah, I struggled to begin with. And then, you know, I had some learnings that helped me struggle with it less. I struggled to begin with because I had preconceptions about what the world of work was supposed to look like, what a nine to five day was supposed to look like, i.e. it's probably not supposed to be nine until five. It's probably something more like eight until uh, 7.38. And, you know, you see people around you, not everybody has this work-life balance worked out. (laughs) And, you know, you see people around you who will work through midnight into the early hours and they'll come back to work and they'll talk about it. And you're like, well, I should, should I be doing that? Maybe. Am I the weak link in this chain? Um, and it takes a while, you know, especially as somebody new and impressionable, it's, it takes a while to get your head around the fact that actually you can get more work done and you can get better work done and you can work smarter if you manage your energy and managing energy is far more important than, than, you know, doing more work or, or I think managing energy is more useful frame than even thinking about work-life balance, because if you think about work-life balance, it's sort of, um, it's sort of prefaced by this idea that there is some balance between work and life. And and those are two things are separate. And actually it's, I find it more useful to think I have a certain amount of energy in a given day that I can give to what I think is important to me. And if the most important thing to me today is getting my work done, I can give all of my energy to get to getting that work done. If the most important thing to me today is my girlfriend or my family, or it's uh, running a half marathon, then I'm putting all of my energy into that today. So that's, that's how I think about it. And I'm fortunate to be in a team that understands management of energy. Um, They under, it's a very outcomes focused team. It's, you might call it a um, value-based rather than service-based team. I'm not, you know, we don't measure minutes spent on every project. We look at, you know, the outcome, we look at the work that gets done uh, and, and that's how we work. So I'm fortunate in that sense. I don't think everybody is in a, a team like that um, around the world. Um, not just talking about GSK, but, you know, the, the state of the world of work at, at the moment. So I'm fortunate and I know that, but uh, thinking about it in terms of energy and energy management is probably what I'd offer there. I think that's very different perspectives to actually look at things like that and not not having to separate work and life is uh not well i definitely hadn't heard of that before so um in moments of stress though where when you are everything's piling up or struggling especially perhaps in in the earlier days of of your career what were you doing to deal with this let off steam and sort of recollect yourself and come back to, to square one running Running yeah. from my problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of running. Um, I think exercise, I've really, really noticed the value of exercise since we went into lockdown um, because I admittedly ended up a bit of a couch potato for a few of the of the last months. Um, and that was really what showed me that uh, I was super active before lockdown. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, training for the London Marathon. I got a knee injury, so I had to pull out. But I was playing a lot of squash. Like uh, we have squash courts at GSK and I, I was playing a lot of squash there. Um, I was getting into bouldering. I was training for triathlons. I was doing everything I could, exercising as much as I could. And I didn't really realize the effect that it was having on my mental health and ability to cope with stress until I stopped doing it, until until you go from triathlon training to nothing for months on end. That is the perfect N of one study way. You're, you're performing an experiment on yourself to see what happens when you remove all of that physical activity. And it really does make such a huge difference. So that's that's the, the, the obvious one. Um, and then the, the less obvious one is to, is the way that I coped is, it's about sphere of influence. 
this is a this is not my thinking sphere of influence understanding what you can control and what you can't control um and just being careful and mindful of uh, of what's within your influence uh, and and what you can achieve reasonably um and and not not stretching yourself so far into strain that you that you are taking on more than you're you know humanly capable of given the, the finite energy capacity you have in any given day um, now the the future of health, sort of talking about this this combination between health and technology that you've mentioned before. Um, what technology trends in healthcare do you find particularly interesting at the moment? I think they're all interesting, <laughs> all of all the trends, and I, I say that really um, because that's the the most interesting part of my job is trying to take that step back and say, okay analysts are talking about 15 most you know the, the 10 15 most important trends of 2020 of 2019 of 2018 2017 etc back until technology became a thing um but te- the the what is interesting is trying to take that step back and being like well actually what the hell are we trying to do here as a species in how we take care and how we manage our health what are we trying to invent for ourselves what do all of these different technologies that are being used in all of these different ways what does that really mean in an anthropological sense Uh, i think that's the most fascinating component Um, and that is to say that we are really building this machine that takes care of us we are building i mean the simplest analogy is the doctor of tomorrow is some you know robot I don't believe that's the case. I think the human component of healthcare is is going to be enormous. But in a, at a systems level, we're we're building this huge network of individual capabilities and uh, and you know individual systems and subsystems that will actually automate the uh, the automate our healthcare. It will help us, you know, in the 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 GSK slogan is "Do more, feel better, live longer." We're building technology that does that for us and with us um, in all these different ways. So that's the biggest like macro trend that there is in health. Um, And that started when we started making medicine, but um, that's, that's what's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. So just to make clear, I mean, these are, these are my opinions personally, Uh, just from my vantage point within the healthcare industry, I'm not expressing the, the viewpoints or opinions of GSK or even anybody else inside of GSK. This is just what I'm seeing from where I sit, uh, and, and the work that I uh, uh, I get the, the privilege of, uh, of of thinking about on these topics. So, yeah. So you mentioned automation then. And personally, I find mm. the effect that AI can have on healthcare particularly fascinating. So I think it was Google which developed the DeepMind um, artificial intelligence, which um, has been like outperforming human radiologists um, on average. And it led mm. me to wonder how else is artificial intelligence affecting the healthcare industry and how will it continue to improve the efficiency of health in general for us? How, how it's affecting the industry um, is, a, is an interesting question. And it's, it's a better question than what can we do with AI, which is the most popular question. It's where everybody starts. What can we do with AI today that we couldn't do yesterday? But actually how it's affecting the industry how it's making people think about their roles and how they add value in their roles is perhaps more interesting. When it comes to the practice of healthcare, if I told you that I had a machine that could make your decisions more accurately than you can, even by a couple of percentage points, 
I mean, from a patient's perspective, that's enough to say, well, I want the machine to make the decision. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's the direction we're heading in because of the human component being so integral and, and critical to the practice of medicine. Um, it's, it's such a, it's such a, a special um, part of life where we do quite a miraculous thing under very difficult circumstances for people that are really in a time of need. And, um, you know, just making more accurate decisions um, is not the be all and end all. I think being able to make better decisions in healthcare, um, if we're using AI, is a fantastic thing. It just shouldn't be pursued in isolation. So I think the most interesting aspect, to go back to that, is, is how it's making people reconsider the value that they are bringing in their healthcare role. When um, at GSK is a, a biopharmaceutical company, what is the value add of GSK if decision-making at GSK becomes more data-driven and more automated? What is the human component of, of our position in society uh, and in the healthcare ecosystem? I think that's an interesting question. Um, for a patient, it's I'm getting all of these automated recommendations about what I should do with my health. You know, Babylon Health is telling me to do this and my Fitbit is telling me to do that and Apple Health is telling me to do this. What's actually important to me? How do I want to live my life? Do I want to be the healthiest I can be? Um, and for a, for a physician, for a doctor, it's um, if the decision to triage a patient is automated tomorrow, where do I fit in? You know, what am I offering to a patient today um, that I can still offer to a patient tomorrow? In fact, what, what am I offering today that I can offer more of tomorrow because some of the decision-making weight uh, is taken out of, you know, out of the day job? And, you know, as well, especially in that role, how, it, because more of the, the administrative tasks are taken out, taken out of the day as well. What, when that um, space is freed up in the day, what can I do with it to help my patients um, get better and live healthier lives? I think this is a fascinating question. Um, you've spoken about sort of Apple um, and other things beginning to sort of, well, automation and, and things being sent to you automatically and being scanned and read automatically for you. Um, it, Apple's recently released, well, Apple Watch can now track your blood oxygen levels, VO2 max, mm. sleep tracking, and it even has a hand washing feature. Um Again, this combination between tech and health, what opportunities do these technology companies like Apple provide? It's 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 fascinatingly unclear at the moment. <laughs> and I say that because what we saw is it started with heart rate sensors. And you know, I think Fitbit really pushed this forward because you know Fitbit is the household name for wearables. Um, but then, you know, most wearables, the Apple um, Apple Watch and the Samsung watches, the Garmin's of the world, all started putting heart rate sensors in their devices. And initially, everyone, everybody was like, well, they're kind of inaccurate. They don't really work very well. I mean, even for the casual user, just tracking their heart rate through a run, they're kind of finicky. Um, and I was watching this thinking, well, why are we bothering? You know, what is what value is this really adding? These half-baked uh, heart rate sensors that only work when you're sat still. And if you sweat too much, they, uh, you know, they lose fidelity. Um, and then what we've seen over time, actually, and I, this is what, you know, the part of my role is learning to understand these trends and how these technologies mature and, uh, and the drivers behind that. Um, what we saw is that the heart rate sensors became phenomenally more competent 
they, they might have started from a weak position, but they just gradually became just competent enough to actually now start doing some you know, uh, real-world data collection in actual clinical studies uh, with the likes of Johnson & Johnson and uh, some other academic partners that Apple are striking up these studies with. Um, so uh, all of that to say, it's never immediately clear what these things are for until the technology gets better and people start figuring out how to put two and two together and combine your uh, SpO2 with your heart rate, with your blood pressure, with uh, glucose, continuous glucose monitor. Um, and, you know, these are really like the, these are the, this is the toolbox for the innovators of the next decade. Now that these sensors are getting good enough to start figuring out what new value propositions we can offer. Um, I think, uh, I think that's really interesting, but it is hard work to try and piece those things together from today and say, you know, what's, what are we going to make tomorrow with these new Lego bricks that we've been given in the toy set? Do you think seeing the technological companies moving into healthcare could create privacy concerns for the average consumer? I think it already is. I mean, I know it already is. We, we read about this all the time. Um, it is already, I mean, not everybody may be aware of it. Every, I think everybody has at least heard that data collection on a massive scale creates privacy concerns and that privacy and security is important. And then some people, particularly those in the field, those in healthcare, those in, in tech and healthcare tech are asking the questions, well, you know, um, are we doing more harm than good here by collecting all of this data? And I'm of the opinion that uh, anything that you make, anything that you innovate should have a net positive value on the world. So you shouldn't rob Peter to pay Paul. We don't have to rob ourselves of privacy in order to get the value proposition of some new healthcare tech that has a new sensor in it that collects some new data that you might be worried about getting stolen if it was secured, uh, uh, if, it was in, if it wasn't stored securely. Um, so I, I don't think, I think a lot of the rhetoric on this topic is as if those two things are mutually exclusive. Either we have privacy and security, or we have cool new health tech for the future that helps us live longer and healthier. And it doesn't have to be that way, but that's not to say it isn't hard. I do think it is a very hard problem to make sure we build these systems in a way that is secure and our privacy is protected. Um, but I'm not a fan of these very polarized um, discussions on the topic that really slow things down because you start saying, well, we can't have tech um, because it introduces privacy concerns, scares people, and it becomes a, a very, you, you, you cultivate a fear-based culture and that's not conducive to innovation. What we need is very careful, thoughtful, considerate development of systems that are secure, but still offer the value propositions that we want to benefit from. Um, so does it introduce privacy concerns? tech playing in health any more than tech playing in finance or you know tech playing in uh your romantic life with you know, tinder and hench and bumble <laughs> the answer is the same right um so throughout the podcast you've you've sort of talked about how two things that seem to be opposing actually shouldn't be seen as separate entities that the idea is that they can be combined or you don't need to have one thus without the other sort of where do you see health and tech combined in the next 10 20 years what do you think that perfect measure is then the balance between the two where do is the question where do i think this will unfold this playground yeah. between health and tech exactly um it's one of two places i think i mean 
it, it's one of two or it's both places at the same time and they become the same place. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So we have the traditional consumer technology companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, um, even the social media companies, Facebook, um, they are moving into health. Apple has expressed that the biggest impact that they, you know, Tim Cook, the biggest impact that he wants to have with Apple is that, you know, that they'll be remembered uh, for being a healthcare company. I'm probably paraphrasing him, but that's no small statement. Um, so watching that carefully, watching the build out of Apple Health, um, of Google's you know, plays through Verily, um, which is their life sciences company, um, sorry, not under Google, but under Alphabet, and DeepMind, um, the, the work that you mentioned, Tim, um, uh, in radiology, uh, but also the stuff that they're doing in protein folding with their alpha, alpha fold, um, um, their alpha fold work. The, the consumer technology companies are definitely already doing interesting things in that space. They definitely seem to want to own that part of the proposition, the interface with healthcare tech. But we also see this new telehealth space, which is pioneered by the likes of Teladoc and Babylon Health. Um, the, they're providing these sort of chatbot style interfaces that's like better than Googling your symptoms. It's a real like vetted source of information and you can connect with a real HCP uh, and you can even go as far as getting, you know, in the future, getting prescriptions, depending on which market you're in. Uh, and then the dispensation of those um, of those prescriptions and getting everything delivered to your house. Like everything seems to be uh, centering around these telehealth interfaces which are pioneered by these companies. So it's interesting to see, it's interesting to watch where they will go, whether they will express preference for particular technology platforms um, that, you know, that will really in, <laughs> entrench their positions as like the de facto telehealth provider um, or, will the, or will the ecosystem become more fragmented? That's a really interesting thing to watch because it's actually quite immature, hugely accelerated by COVID because of the need for remote services. Um, and we saw a lot of funding go into telehealth over especially Q3 of this year. Um, so it, it's the paint is not dry. Um, it's just, there are a few key players where it's interesting to see how the funding and the mergers and the acquisitions coalesce around these players uh, to see where, where that future will play out. But um, it's not clear. So you mentioned earlier the idea of fear-mongering and how technology companies are, are having access to people's data and thus their privacy. Perhaps I'm being naive, but I, I struggle to see how knowing someone's health status and their health care, that sort of data can't be used for good, assuming there's not these third parties involved with uh, advertisement companies who start advertising on, on people's pages based on their healthcare data. Do you believe that there is actually a net positive then with tech companies um, and technology being able to have access to people's healthcare? So, okay, it depends. <laughs> Do I believe there's a net positive gain on technology companies having access to our uh, healthcare data? It depends on what they do with it and what the regulation is surrounding it. Um, the fear, one of the fears, obviously, is if that technology company is particularly dominant in advertising, that they will sell that data on as they do with less sensitive data uh, to uh, to third parties. 
Um, and that's something that makes people very uncomfortable when the nature of that data is more sensitive. Um, so if a company was to do that and to violate people's sense of privacy for sensitive data, then that's not, that's not a net, a net positive. I don't think, I don't think that's a, that's a, I don't think that's a viable path forward. Um, so it depends what happens. It depends, um, it depends who's allowed to collect the data, but it depends more so what they're allowed to do with it. I think, um, there are a lot of conversations in the media about who should be allowed to collect data and who shouldn't be allowed to collect data. I think that's, uh, that's murky territory. I think it's more useful to talk about, uh, if, and when certain companies are collecting, uh, certain people's data at certain times, what should they be allowed to do with that data and what shouldn't they be allowed to do with that? Um, and, and therein lies the answer to your <laughs> net positive, uh, question. Um, but, uh, um, no, this is these. These are the more difficult questions that you're asking me. So uh, we're <laughs> bang on the mark. But uh, I'm afraid if I had an answer to that question, uh, I would. Uh, I should be shouting a little bit louder about it. Mm. Um, so we've talked a lot about technological innovations so far in this podcast, and one technological revolution which has been talked about how it can affect healthcare is Elon Musk Neuralink. And he's talked about how it can identify early signs of Parkinson's disease. Um, is there a ceiling for technology in the healthcare industry um, where it cannot replace the human aspect? Um, do I think there's a, a, a limit on how we can apply technology to healthcare? So I think there's a, there's a theoretical limit, um, which uh, I'm not even sure exists. But there's way before that, there is a functional limit of diminishing returns where we try to play with too much of our biology and our psychology um, and it becomes fragile at a point, so fragile at a point that to uh, just to, to add anything more to such a delicate, delicate system, um, we face diminishing returns. Um, it becomes too expensive, too complicated to actually, I mean, if you, anything short of, of uh, simulating your entire body in, inside a computer and uploading yourself to the matrix, um, <laughs> which I think is where Elon Musk is going with Neuralink. Um, I, I think, you know, the brain's a complex thing. Um, the brain is uh, fantastically complex and there are so many different networks all keeping each other in very careful balance. And when one of those networks goes even slightly out of whack, uh, manifests in, you know, sometimes the most debilitating neurological symptoms. Um, we are in the midst of figuring out how to correct those minor imbalances today in 2020. The field, that's where the field of neuroscience is, um, trying to augment um, and build on the functionality of the brain. As Elon Musk talks, Musk talks about um, expanding our capacity for memory and interfacing with the internet of the future. I think he's probably right, but we've got to think about the time frame on which he's right and where neuroscience is today. And that's the that's the bulk of the criticism that Elon gets, is that people say he doesn't understand the timeline, he doesn't understand where we are today uh, and what can be reasonably achieved. That doesn't mean that there isn't something in it to have somebody who asks the question, can we do X, can we do Y? That is so valuable. Do I think Elon Musk should be asking the question? Yes, absolutely. Do I think he should face fierce resistance? Yes, absolutely. It's all a good thing. Every everything is kept in balance, and uh, and and that's how progress happens, carefully, um, <laughs> and and that's very important. Um, but you know, I I think if you try to achieve too much too soon, things 
um, things go wrong. So you have to be, you know, you have to be careful and approach it um, piece by piece, especially in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. So just to make clear, I mean, these are, these are my opinions personally, uh, just from my vantage point within the healthcare industry, I'm not expressing the, the viewpoints or opinions of GSK or even anybody else inside of GSK. This is just what I'm seeing from where I sit uh, and, and the work that I uh, uh, I get the, the privilege of, uh, of of thinking about on these topics. So, yeah. Um, before Tim takes us home with that final question, um, I do have one last thing because it seems a lot of this we've been talking about is how uh, digital technology, things like your Apple Watches, your Fitbits, are, are able to monitor our physical health. What I'm intrigued in is how digital technology, at what stage is it at to start altering or, or helping our mental health um, as individuals, as humans, because that's something that's very prevalent these days as well. It's a fantastic question. And I think the question was at what stage? And I'd say we're already there. I talked earlier about how important exercise is to my mental health and ability to cope with stress. If you have an app that is telling you to go out for a run occasionally or just stay fit, that is a <laughs> that is a mental health value proposition there. So we're already there. Um, the question is, where are we going next, I think? Uh, and how much of a role can technology play in, in supporting our mental health? Um, it's an incredibly complex topic. Again, like, <laughs> like all of these things, it's mental health is a very uh, very complex and delicate system held in balance by a few different um forces um designing technologies that can that can improve um the performance of that system in your body um it, it is is complex so for the final question it's almost a tradition at this point we ask our guests from your experience, are there any specific traits or behaviours that help to distinguish a successful individual? And I think it would also be interesting to maybe get a um, neuroscience perspective on it as well. I don't know if I can give you a neuroscience perspective on it, but I can give you my own philosophical standpoint. Um, and firstly, I love that implicit in that question is that I've been successful. So thank you for the compliment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But... Um, uh, my my perspective on I, I have a strong opinion on this. Um, um, my perspective is that you can only be successful if you have a strong definition of, of success for yourself. Um, if your if the definition of success for Tim is to become uh, a, a senior manager in innovation strategy at a pharmaceutical company, uh, and he ends up going and uh, being CEO of Goldman Sachs, you failed, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you failed miserably because you were supposed to be me. Um, so you've got to know, you've got to know what success is for you. Um, and there is, there's no such thing as wasted time being introspective there uh, and trying to figure out what makes you tick and what makes you happy um, minute to minute, hour to hour and week to week. Um, because you know, if you define success, a lot of people, I think, define the wrong metrics for success. And then they wonder why they don't feel happy. And it's because the two aren't aligned. Um, I consider myself to be quite a happy person. I feel very fortunate and lucky to be in the role that I'm in. Other people wouldn't be. Other people would hate my job. And I would hate other people's jobs. But I found fit because I was, you know, I, was, I thought carefully about what my definition of success looked like and, you know, what I want to do. What do I want to offer to the world? Um, 
and where can I find harmony in that? Well, I think that's a fantastic final answer. Thank you very much, Alex, for joining us in the meeting room. Guys, listening at home, it's been fantastic speaking to you all, um, and we'll speak to you all next week. See you soon.